Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me, Bobby Bascom, at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. How much global warming is too much? The latest scientific assessment from the UN offers a range of choices for reducing emissions, but the scientists leave it up to governments to decide what's to be done. The right target is actually, that's really a political decision and not a scientific one. I mean, how much pain we're willing to tolerate is going to be a political decision. Also, biologist-turned-best-selling novelist Barbara Kingsolver tells the tale of her family's commitment to eat mostly local food for an entire year. As happened over and over again in this project, what we found was so much more than we were looking for. This isn't a story of deprivation. This is a story of gratitude. Barbara Kingsolver and Animal Vegetable Miracle and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Every five or six years since 1990, the United Nations has pulled together a panel of more than a thousand scientists from around the world to assess the state of global warming. After marathon meetings this past week in Bangkok to thrash out a summary, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has just issued the third and final part of its 2007 assessment. The first two sections looked at basic science and the coping abilities of civilization and nature in the face of impacts ranging from storms and rising sea levels to severe drought and vanishing ice. This final section covers mitigation, things that we could do to slow or halt the warming. Bill Mumaw is a chemist and a professor of international environmental policy at Tufts University. He is one of the key authors of the mitigation report and joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello. Thank you for having me. So give me the basics here on mitigation. Uh, we've heard about the science of climate change. Uh, we've heard about how the planet can adapt to all of this, what's going to happen to people. And now we're focusing on uh, mitigation. That is, what could be done to stop this process before it becomes inevitable? Why is this the most controversial? I think it's the most controversial because it gets closest to um, questions of economics and policy. And uh, therefore, uh, first of all, the, uh, if you think about the science, uh, even though there's been a little fuss over the science, it's much easier to demonstrate whether the science is right or not by doing another measurement, going out and doing another experiment. The greatest uncertainty is not in how climate will change. The greatest uncertainty is what we'll do about it and whatever actions we take, what their impact will be. So do we do a carbon tax? Do we raise the price of fossil fuels? Do we put a cap-and-trade system in place? Do we mandate that we capture carbon dioxide and store it in the ground? Or do we put incentives to do that? Those are all alternatives. And do we put in place more nuclear power? Obviously a controversial topic, but it's covered in the report as to what role it might play in reducing our, our future emissions. Now, the basis of this report was already written quite some time ago. What was all in contention in these uh, last few days leading up to the final release of the report? What's really in contention here is um, the language, how things are stated. 
and which items are emphasized. The interesting thing about the summary for policymakers, which was debated in, in Bangkok, is that this is the only piece that the governments have control over. This is their document. The draft is prepared by the technical people, but then it's really their document. So, for example, China wanted to be sure there was a statement in there that uh, developed countries were responsible for the majority of uh, heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere. That apparently went through fairly easily because it's true. You know, you turn to the technical people and say, is this true? And the answer is, yes, it's true. So we can put that in. There may be something that's more contentious. Um, some countries may not want to see as strong a statement about nuclear power because they're worried about nuclear proliferation or something of that sort. And so they'll want to uh, maybe tone down what they see as too strong a statement. In order for it to get into the summary for policymakers, though, the technical people, those of us who toil in the trenches on this, who are there in Bangkok have to agree that it is consistent with the underlying science and analysis that's in the report. I'm looking at uh, the summary for policymakers from this, and I see a variety of targets that are set for where we need to maintain a stable emissions if we want to avert some of the catastrophes that have been predicted by a rapid climate change and which are referred to in the other parts of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. What's the right target here? Well, the right target is actually, that's really a political decision and not a scientific one. I mean, how much pain we're willing to tolerate is going to be a political decision. We're going to say uh, governments are going to decide individually and collectively on a target. What we do is we say, okay, let's look at what happens if we go from our current level of, say, 380 parts per million of carbon dioxide plus 100 parts per million equivalent of other gases up to um, 650 parts per million. And what would it cost uh, to hold it below, at or below that level by the year 2100? And then we do the same thing for 550 and 450 and so forth. Now, in the previous report, the lowest analysis that was done was about 550 parts per million, which is a lot. It's about double pre-industrial levels. The reason that was in there was because the economists all said, oh, it'll be too costly to do anything more than that, any greater reductions than that. The science that's come in since then suggests that 550 would be pretty devastating, and the costs of damage would be higher than were estimated in the 2001 report. So what kind of world would we have at 450? At 450, we're on the edge. And 450 is interesting. The way these are done, because there are all kinds of still some uncertainties, the 450 number says, uh, the way that the, the probabilities are calculated, that means there's a one chance in two, 50% probability, that the temperature would rise by uh, less than four degrees Fahrenheit. So 50-50 we would be able to keep essentially the planet the way we it sort would, of have it. It would be recognizable. It would still be recognizable. At 550 and 650 parts per million, Earth is not recognizable? I think it's uh, certainly uh, the natural systems around us have changed dramatically. Our agricultural systems are severely changed. And in areas like Africa, a devastation. So what kind of solutions are necessary to implement the goal of keeping uh, global CO2 uh, equivalent emission below 450 parts per million? And what does the report say? Okay, what the report says is that um, there are three basic things that have to be done. We have to use the energy that we're using much more efficiently. And then it goes through literally hundreds of things that can be done in buildings and in industry and in electric power generation and agriculture and just every aspect of our lives. 
that is the first thing. It's the cheapest thing to do. We also, by the way, this report looks not only at the levels and the technologies and the strategies and policies that might get us there, but it looks at the potential costs. So there are cost figures in there. Secondly, if we really are serious about staying down at 450, in addition to all the efficiency gains, which are, are substantial, we have to uh, go to some zero-emitting electric power generation sources. And that means taking a very strong look at nuclear power and all the renewables, wind and solar and geothermal and all those things, biomass done right, which is a very important caveat. And the final thing that's looked at is um, if we're going to continue using coal and natural gas, we need to capture the carbon dioxide and store it underground or possibly in the oceans, although that has some other issues associated with it. So what are the most promising technologies out there that aren't being currently used on a large-scale commercial basis? Well, certainly the uh, from the point of view of efficiency, the low-hanging fruit is buildings. Uh, buildings use uh, vastly more energy than they need to. I'm actually building a home right now which uses one-fifth the energy of a new code-built house in Massachusetts to begin with. It's doable, it's affordable, and we just needed to get on with doing it. So how do the reports issued by the IPCC help put pressure on policymakers? It's very interesting. The first report came out in 1990, and um, in 1992, there was the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that was uh, adopted uh, by the nations of the world, and George Bush I uh, signed it and brought it back and had it ratified by the Senate. The 1995 report was issued, and in, in 1997, the Kyoto Protocol was uh, enacted. In uh, 2001, the third report came out, and um, that put pressure on um, a number of countries uh, to ratify the Kyoto Protocol, which finally was successfully done when, when Russia ratified, even though the United States did not. And now this fourth report? And now this fourth report comes at an opportune time because... Under the Kyoto Protocol, this is the year, 2007, when we must begin negotiating what happens after 2012 when the Kyoto Protocol comes to an end. And so uh, this is laying out for governments, what do we know about the science? How bad is climate change? How bad is it going to get? What are the impacts? What adaptation needs to be done? And what are the mitigation options that are available to us? Bill Mumaz, Professor of International Environmental Policy and directs the Center for International Environment and Resource Policy at Tufts University. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. You can find a link to the full report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on our website, LOE.org. Now, some advocates say one way to cut emissions without cutting up the economy is to ask the marketplace to find the cheapest options. Next week, we'll take a look at the brisk trading of carbon emission rights now underway in Europe. For example, we've worked with a Scandinavian paper mill as they've made themselves more efficient. They've got emissions credits left to sell and we've sold those to a UK utility which has found that with the high gas prices they want to burn more coal and as a consequence we've put together two people that wouldn't ordinarily speak to each other because a UK utility is not going to be talking to Scandinavian paper mills. Europe trades carbon next week on Living on Earth. And right now, here's this week's note on emerging science from Megan Vigeon. A 
crackerjack team of researchers has been at work this winter bravely diving and swimming in the chilly Arctic waters between northern Canada and Greenland. The divers have been gathering data beneath the ice of Baffin Bay. You can spot them when they surface by their unusual tusks. Oh, that's right, these novice oceanographers are actually narwhals, sometimes known as the unicorn of the sea. The single long spiraled tooth growing from a male narwhal's upper lip was likely the origin of the myth of the unicorn. Fairy tales aside, now these narwhals are getting the facts. Narwhals dive extremely deep in their hunt for food in Baffin Bay, as far down as 1,500 meters deep or almost a mile. And that made them attractive partners for biologists from the University of Washington wanting to study the region's changing climate. The researchers outfitted three narwhals with special sensors that record the temperature of the water as the whales plumb the depths of the bay. When they resurface, the devices send the temperature and the location data to a satellite, which sends it on to the computer of marine biologist Kristen Lydra. The data Lydra and the narwhals are collecting may help climatologists answer big questions about what's going on as the region warms and more ice melts. The narwhals' winter home of Baffin Bay is tied to the Gulf Stream, a major influence on the climate of North America and Europe. But the bay's dense winter ice cover has made it difficult for scientists to get temperature data. Now, with the help of nature's legendary unicorn of the sea, the picture may be coming clearer. And that's no fairy tale. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Megan Vigent. And you're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Every day, it seems, thousands of Americans pack up for the sunny skies of the Southwest, especially the booming cities of Las Vegas and Phoenix. The Southwest is a desert, of course, but thanks to the massive water projects of the 1930s, it became hospitable for millions of settlers. But now there's trouble in the Southwest. The region is suffering through its eighth year of drought with little or no relief in sight. For much of its water, the southwest relies on the Colorado River to bring snowmelt from the Rocky Mountains. But snow patterns are changing, and the Colorado is carrying a lot less water than it did a century ago. Overall, it seems global warming is hitting the region harder than just about anywhere else in the country. Brian Mann of North Country Public Radio has our story. Here's where man conquered this mighty river, placing a concrete yoke about its neck. This is Hoover Dam on the Nevada-Arizona border. In 1935, Franklin Roosevelt dedicated the massive gleaming structure, harnessing the Colorado River. Another great achievement of American resourcefulness, American skill, and American determination. Hoover Dam brought the desert... 75 years later, big crowds of tourists squeezed through the dam's visitor center. Come on in, folks. Find a place where you can stay. This may be one of the world's modern engineering marvels, but tour guide Bruce Laughlin, who works for the Federal Bureau of Reclamation, acknowledges that the Colorado River's great reservoirs at Lake Powell and here at Lake Mead were built for much wetter times. For nearly a decade, they've been drying up. I think we're about 54%. How long since it's been full? This lake was filled right to the top before this drought started in 1998. This coming year, they're going to hold as much water as they can in the upper lake because they need to fill up Lake Powell because it's getting dangerously low. This lake's probably going to go down more. 
Scientists now believe that the West was settled during an unusually wet period. The people who built these reservoirs had unrealistic expectations for how much rain and snow would fall each year. Recent climate models predict further drying, less precipitation for the Southwest. If nature gives us a little less water, then there just is not enough to go around. Peter Glick is a water expert at an environment and resources think tank in Oakland, California, called the Pacific Institute. It turns out that a very small decrease in average flow of the Colorado in the long run drains those reservoirs dry. A new study by the Lamont-Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, published in the journal Science, focused on predictions for the Southwest. Atmospheric scientist and lead researcher Richard Seeger says he expects precipitation in this region to drop by 10 to 20 percent before mid-century. Meanwhile, the population of the Southwest is still growing by roughly a million people a year. With declining water availability, there's going to be quite a tussle about who gets the water and whether it's going to be possible to reallocate water in a way that will retain agriculture that's needed but also sustain a growing um, urban population. Rising temperatures are already shrinking the mountain snowpack, which feeds western rivers through the summer. In the future, by summer's end, there may be no more snow to melt. So that natural system of water storage, the, the water supply system is relying on, is going to become less effective. Water experts say these incremental changes could disrupt the Colorado River's complicated system of dams, reservoirs, and allocation treaties that now supply water to 25 million people. What resources we do have, given what global warming could present to us, could evaporate tomorrow. Patricia Mulroy is general manager of the Southern Nevada Water Authority, which is charged with supplying water to the city of Las Vegas. I do believe that the Colorado River is going to be severely challenged as we go through global warming. We're already behind in developing those alternatives on how to protect human existence in the West. Conservation is a necessity, and some fast-growing cities have implemented water use restrictions unheard of in water-rich parts of the U.S. Denver and Aurora, Colorado are seen as models, as is Tucson, Arizona. Here in Las Vegas, there are actually water detectives who sniff out waste. Here's a trail of water coming from somewhere up the street here. You follow it to its source, hopefully. Pretty good clue trail to follow right there. Mid-morning, Ken Nicholas, a water cop with the Las Vegas Valley Water District, is patrolling an upscale Vegas neighborhood. Nicholas pulls over and talks with a woman outside a suburban ranch house. With its water-hungry lawn and thirsty mulberry trees, this could be a home in Buffalo or Chicago. You have nozzles by your nail box that are spraying in the street. I, I don't live here, I'm just a nanny. The Water Authority has combined this kind of enforcement with new incentives, urging people to convert from grass and shrubs to desert plants and rock gardens. But critics say the city isn't doing nearly enough. Down on Vegas's Casino Strip, there's water everywhere, flowing from extravagant fountains, gushing over man-made waterfalls. Outside the Venetian, one of Vegas's showcase casinos, gondolas ferry tourists through glittering canals. This water is recirculated and reused, but Jill Roland Lagan says it's a symbol of the city's outdated thinking. Are they being smart about growth? Um, you know, should they have some type of moratorium on growth until we get this water issue taken care of? Are they still catering to the, the major casinos and the major contractors? 
Jill Rowland Leakin heads the Chamber of Commerce in Boulder City, a small town that lies between Las Vegas and the Lake Mead Reservoir. Her community has embraced a slow growth ordinance that limits new home construction. We don't even take our complete allocation of water here in Boulder City because it's all going to Vegas to make sure that they're taken care of. But Patricia Mulroy with the Southern Nevada Water Authority says slowing Las Vegas's growth is not an option. Construction cranes punctuate the horizon. With 8,000 new residents arriving every month, neighborhoods push steadily toward the arid hills. Every piece of private land is acquired with an expectation to not leave it desert, but to build on it. And the private property owner has a right to develop his property. 80% of the Colorado River's water is still used for agriculture, and Mulroy says that has to change. The Water Authority has already begun buying up farms and ranches in rural Nevada in a bid to control more water rights. But as the drought deepens, Columbia University researcher Richard Seeger says rain and snowfall in this region will decline to levels not experienced since the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Only this time, the dry spell won't end. That level of reduction was enough to cause um, really severe trouble. And um, that level of reduction persisting for an even longer period of time will, will equally cause a lot of trouble. For Living on Earth, I'm Brian Mann in Las Vegas, Nevada. Barbara Kingsolver left life in the farm country of Kentucky in the 1970s to become educated as an evolutionary biologist. But what she didn't know was that she would also become a best-selling novelist. You may know some of her titles. The Poisonwood Bible is one. Prodigal Summer is another. Now she and her husband and daughter have a volume that documents how her family carried out a vow to eat only locally grown food for one year. The book is called Animal Vegetable Miracle, a year of food life. Her family produced about 70% of what went on their table from their own farm in Virginia, everything from tomatoes to turkeys. And what they couldn't grow, they mostly bought from local farmers. I spoke with Barbara Kingsolver recently. I asked her what motivated her and her family to become what's known as locavores, people who eat locally. We were led into this project for so many reasons. For me, it's because I grew up in a rural community among farmers, and I've always considered the local farming economy to be important and, frankly, an important part of food security. We are now, as a nation, putting almost as much fossil fuels into our refrigerators as our cars. Every item, on average, um, on the American plate has traveled 1,500 miles. So add up all the items on your plate, and it's you might as well order room service from the moon. That's an incredible amount of fossil fuel, an incredible amount of carbon emissions uh, going into the atmosphere, warming up the globe, just to get a grape from Chile, a tomato from Mexico, so that I can eat a tomato in January. Now, you write in your book that 80% of us in America would love to eat more organic and locally grown foods, yet the American government, through the, the Farm Bill, gives just about all of federal money to the biggest farms in the country, and, and most of them grow things like corn, soybeans, and wheat far from where most of us live. Can you talk to me more about that? I'm so glad you brought that up. 
U.S. taxpayers pay tens of billions of dollars every year to subsidize the production of commodity crops, which are, as you mentioned, mostly corn, wheat, and soybeans. Most of that production enters our diets almost without our notice, as the ingredients of processed foods, like high fructose corn syrup, or feed for confinement-raised cattle and hogs. And we also, as taxpayers, subsidize the fuel costs of getting these products manufactured and ship to the market. So it's a funny thing. In this country, we think of fast food as cheap in spite of all the fossil fuels and processing that were required to make it, while we think of simple, unprocessed, organic produce as sort of elite, an expensive option. It's incredibly ironic that the U.S. government urges us to eat more fruits and vegetables, but our agricultural programs offer virtually no assistance to fruit and vegetable growers. But what did it cost you to uh, grow your own food and buy the rest of it locally? You know what? We were stunned by the answer to that question. I kept really careful records, and I found out that we spent about 50 cents per person per meal to eat as splendidly as we did in this year. And I thought, this must be a mistake. So someone went back and recalculated, and that was it, 50 cents a person per meal. So for those of us who are used to having orange juice for breakfast, how were you able to pull this off? I mean, eating locally, growing it yourself or getting it from local farmers, means that, for example, you're not going to have orange juice for breakfast there in Virginia. You start by accepting this will be a paradigm shift. This will be a change in the way you think about food. And as time went by, we really learned to stop asking that question, what do I want right now? And instead, start seeing each week as something like the menu in a restaurant. Look at what's available. What do they have? What's growing this week? What's fresh and delicious? And choose from that. I do want to point out that we weren't the strictest locavores. We didn't, for example, give up coffee because my husband said coffee will get you through times of no food better than food will get you through times of no coffee. And uh, I began to to understand important things about my marriage. So now you were a vegetarian for for many years, um, mm-hmm. but as part of this project, you decided to uh, to raise and slaughter your own meat. Uh, talk to me about how and why you came to that decision. It's really important to know that food is not just a product, but a process. There are two very different ways of producing meat. One of them is called Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, or CAFOs. These are feedlots for cattle or um, metal windowless warehouses for um, hogs, turkeys, chickens, and so forth, where they're, they're crowded as close as they can possibly be. And these very concentrated populations require that all of their food be milled and processed somewhere else and brought in, and then all of the concentrated waste have to be trucked out to somewhere, heaven only knows where, and these animals get fed sort of a porridge of the cheapest ingredients just for the efficiency of producing cheap meat. And also they have to be given antibiotics in order to keep them alive under conditions of extreme physiological stress. So that kind of meat I hadn't eaten for many years. There is another way, a different way of raising meat, and that is keeping these animals on pasture. 
And the interesting thing from an energetic point of view is that they can do all this without using a drop of gasoline. In the county where I live, we have a lot of steep, grassy pastures. And we can use this as a solar-powered industry to make meat. And that's a food, that's the food that my grandparents got through the winter on, and we felt that we could do the same, and we even raised turkeys and chickens of our own. Now, there's a great scene in your book when you are getting ready to have a party in the early spring. Mm-hmm. It's about this time of year, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's right. Around around your birthday, I guess. Yeah. And uh, you'd only been at this for a little while. I mean, you didn't have last year's uh, canned goods or anything uh, stuck in your freezer that you could trot out here. Right. We began thinking, oh, this is a bleak time of year. May is still pretty early where we live in the mountains of southern Appalachia. There's not a lot coming up just yet. Um, And we were thinking, oh, this is going to be the borscht party, beets and potatoes. But as a matter of fact, as happened over and over again in this project, what we found was so much more than we were looking for. There were terrific salad greens. There was asparagus. There were eggs so we could have asparagus frittatas. There was rhubarb and strawberries so we could have strawberry rhubarb crisp. There were lamb and, um, oh, wow, we had chicken pizza. There was so much that was just literally down the road from where we lived so much more than we expected. And it turned out to be a terrific event because it reinforced to us that this isn't a story of deprivation. This is a story of gratitude. Now, where you are in Virginia, you've got a farm, a lot of neighbors who are in the food business. But what about somebody who lives in, say, the city or a colder climate? What kind of advice would you offer for taking steps to to eat more locally? Being thoughtful about food life is not, of course, about growing your own. Anyone who has choices about food can exercise them with more care, even in the cities, and especially in the cities. Every grocery store that carries multiple brands will have some that are produced closer to home than others. We can all emphasize whole ingredients more and pass up processed goods that have so many hidden costs. And the next stop, of course, is the farmer's market. More than half of all of us who live in the U.S. live within striking distance of a place where farmers sell their own produce. Also, many cities have community gardens. I think there are 114 of them in Manhattan alone. Any way you cut it, Getting to know your own food chain is is neighborly and it's healthy. It keeps your money in your own community and it keeps the land around you a little more green. So you eat locally for a year and you live to tell about it. And the day this project was finished, did you run out for what? Uh, maybe uh, a... <laughs> Coca-Cola and moon pies? No, we didn't. We forgot to notice the day the project ended. By this time, it was just the way we lived. We have a new relationship with where we live. We are what we ate. Barbara Kingsolver's new book is Animal Vegetable Miracle, A Year of Food Life. It was written with her husband, Stephen L. Hopp, and daughter, Camille Kingsolver. Barbara, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. And you can hear more of our conversation with Barbara Kingsolver, as well as readings from the new book and some of her family's favorite homegrown recipes at our website, LOE.org.
You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. And of course, the address is loe.org. And your comments are always welcome. Send them to us at comments at loe.org. Once again, that's comments at loe.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Coming up, this year's winner of the Goldman Environmental Prize for Africa is a human hammer against poaching and poverty in Zambia. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation and from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund, celebrating the 2007 Goldman Environmental Prize winners. Learn more about each winner at www.goldmanprize.org. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Each year, the Goldman Environmental Prize recognizes seven grassroots environmental activists from around the world with prizes of $125,000. This year, the winner from Africa comes with a story that may be familiar to listeners to Living on Earth. The tale of Hammerskold Simwinga of Zambia figures prominently in the book Secrets of the Savannah. It was written by American zoologist Mark and Delia Owens, who last appeared on our show about a year ago. They had worked with Mr. Simwinga on elephant conservation and community development in northern Zambia. The trio helped villagers start a cottage industry pressing cooking oil from sunflowers as an economic alternative for rampant elephant poaching in the area, especially in North Luanga National Park. Influential commercial poachers and government officials pushed the Owenses out of Zambia a few years ago, and Hammerskold Simwinga was left to pick up the pieces. Mr. Samwinga came to the U.S. to receive his Goldman Environmental Prize and joins us now in the studio. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. How did you get that name, Hammerskold? It doesn't sound African to me. No, no, no. It's really Swedish. You know, in the early 60s, we we had uh, Doug Hammerskold, who was our Secretary General, and he was on a mission to Africa. And um, sadly, he crashed in Dola, which is our um, uh, second capital city in Zambia. And by that time, Dad was working at uh, a nearest hospital and was among the first people to rush at the scene. And um, unfortunately, it was a disaster. But a few years later, when Dad had his firstborn, he thought of naming him Hamashod. And that's how I was named Hamashod. <laughs> and everybody, everybody calls you Hammer. And now everybody calls me Hammer because apparently it's a long name for everybody. And also it's difficult to write it. You know, the spelling is quite <laughs> quite difficult. So I've decided to shorten it by Hammer. But I love to be called Hammer Short. For the UN Secretary General who was killed in a plane crash. Yeah, there. on a noble mission to Africa. The very first UN General Secretary, I believe. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, so where exactly are you from? I'm coming from Zambia, a country on the central part of Africa, and I'm also coming from the northern part of that country. And my concentration of work is in the North Rwanda National Park. This is a park which is part of the Great Rift Valley of the East Africa, and it has a diverse animal species and also including plant species. So what exactly do you do there? There I'm working with the community because initially this community was more involved in illegal hunting. 
and at the rate the park was being hunted, it was going to have maybe by this time sterilized. Sterilized, you that mean? That is being all, all the completely big animals gone. gone. And uh, this is a park which is about 6,400 kilometers squared. If all big animals were wiped out, then this would be just an empty wilderness. I'm also working with the community in terms of providing them with the alternatives. That is, uh, in terms of agriculture and cottage industries. This is in terms of promoting beekeeping, fish farming, resource. So what inspired you to do this work? Why didn't you just, if the local business is poaching and illegal hunting, why don't you join with them? Yeah, basically, uh, it was a sad situation which maybe inspired me because uh, at one time we managed to see 10 in a day dead elephants with all their tusks gone. Then these are creatures to which, to my heart, I think it's our role as human beings to give them the protection. The thing which also made me really inspired and made me really do something was when a head of an elephant was killed and only a baby elephant remained and it had nowhere to go, it started following the people wherever they went. So to me, that really moved my heart and then I said we should do something. Now, in years past on our program, Living on Earth, we've had Mark and Delia Owens uh, talk to us, and they spent some time in your area. You spent some time with them, right? Yeah, yeah. basically, yes, uh, because they were doing their study in the park, and uh, their study was constantly disturbed by the heavy poaching which was going on there. That's when, again, the thought of maybe uh, increasing the area of intervention, not only looking into the affairs of the research and the science behind it, but they also looked on how they can empower the community. So that's how they came up with a community development program as another way of saving the national park. So this is where I was hired in, in 1994, to come in and spearhead the community development program, basically to do more on agriculture development and business entrepreneurship. So before you were working on your own dealing with poachers, you were very concerned. Yes, yes. And then the Owenses came along and they hired you to help them with their project. It definitely, yes. So you combined forces. It definitely, yes. That was a good team because uh, I found a couple who had the passion for the animals and also the passion for the country and the passion for the community. So they managed to also raise funds to help the community program by bringing in uh, simple machines like the oil presses. This also helped the community develop a bigger interest in preserving the wildlife because now we linked the community program and also the, the wildlife conservation part of it. After a while, though, Mark and Delia Owens, the Americans who were interested, I guess, in, in elephants and then community development, they got run out of your country. The, uh, people were looking for them, trying, I guess, trying to kill them. Uh, it has never been easy, especially in conserving wildlife in Africa. It could not only be in Zambia, but all of Africa because of the poverty levels. And when uh, you try to maybe to stop illegal people doing something wrong, then they'll be on your life because you're kind of interfering with their incomes. So definitely it was not only the Mark Owens who were in danger, but also the people who are working with the project and also the game scouts who are implementing the law enforcement part. The biggest part was to, to have the community on our side. And that's why the community program came in so that we could offer an alternative so that we could also do a co-management program with them. 
So what happened? The, the Owens, they could leave and come back to America. You couldn't leave. I mean, that's home for you, Zambia. Yeah, it was home, so I could not leave. Uh, we had a, a government at that time which was corrupt, of course, but we were quite strong because we stood for conservation. And then that's how the Mark Owens, in fact, they were on a holiday here in USA. They just heard that their project has been, has been stopped, had no pay, had nowhere to go, had no transport to continue the program. But because of what I said, that I was inspired with what was already on the ground, I had to stand up because the picture of the elephant, baby elephant, was still in me. The picture of the community still needing someone to motivate them to go ahead was still in me. They were my people. It is my country. It was my park. I could not come to the United States, so I had to remain. So you founded your own organization then? Yes, definitely, because I needed to work with something which is legal. Immediately, the owners left, which meant, of course, the project they were working on ceased to be there. But for me to operate effectively and to be protected by the law of the land, I had to register an NGO to continue the work. Of course, I still maintained the North Rwanga Conservation Project because that was still my major strength. And also, I still wanted to continue with the community development program. Hence, this program has two thrusts, conservation of wildlife and also community development. So it's the North Luanga Wildlife Conservation and Community Development mm-hmm. Program. Yes, which means we have to develop the wildlife and also have to develop the community. So we have to find a balance of the two and which I think we've managed to do. Of course, everyone asks you about this. How safe is it for you now? I mean... The Owens were in danger. I think people, one time, they were looking for you too. Yeah, definitely, yes. But uh, that's why in this program, I've concentrated much on the children. I've loved them so much. I had a stronger voice from the young ones whenever I was in the village. They talked good about me. So even when they, um, either their parents were conniving the big poachers, the children would still listen and say, and come and warn me, Asama, don't come to the village today. There are bad guys in the village. So, Hammer, where, where are things now in North Luanga? I think things are better. Everyone is happy. The community is happy because places where they never used to see an elephant, children who never saw the elephant, especially those who were born late 80s, 90s, they just heard of an elephant. But this time, these elephants are moving in their villages. And now we are having a problem on how to control them from... Uh, raiding their crops. And um, luckily enough, and happily enough, I'd say we've now found a kind of a simple solution which has worked for the past uh, three years. We're using uh, chili, making some chili fence. This is a, a very humane and uh, more say it's a, a very f- environmental friendly way of protecting uh, the elephants into the people's fields. The chili is planted either as a boundary of the crop. And the other one is we are using pepper chili. You put a small fiber, then smear your your chili. Just a a single rope. I mean, you cannot imagine that an elephant would be scared to pass through a single rope. But that, because of the chili, which is a terrible repellent. I don't know the science behind it, but an elephant will never come near a chili plant. And that has worked. And at the moment, everyone is growing chili to protect the uh, their fields. Well, you can imagine, I mean, if you've ever had any pepper, 
uh, sprinkled it out, it makes you sneeze, right? Oh, yes, yeah. So now you're an elephant. You know mm-hmm. how much nose an elephant uh, yeah, has? Yeah, and how much air it takes in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I would say the, the park is healthy. Both the community and the Zambia Wildlife Authority and us as a project, we've found a better ground to discuss and see how we conserve this unique resource. How are the villages doing economically now after transitioning from uh, subsistence poaching to uh, the small business of growing uh, fish and Mm. sunflower and doing cooking oil and such? Yeah, uh, so we're seeing increased food production and also increased sales. We are also seeing increased incomes because we do see people buying bicycles. We do see people sending their children to school. So we are having a lot of positive indicators which are showing us that uh, there's an increased income circulation. The economy of the village is expanding because previously you could not find a young man who after producing a certain crop would put up a small tax shop so that there's reinvesting of the money within the community. So basically it's a health community. Uh, The children are happy. They are running around. We have also managed to help them build community schools. So most of the time, our children are spending time at the school. So that has really increased the strength of the community. In short, I would say the community has been empowered through this program. Now, what about tourism? Is there any tourism? Tourism has also developed tremendously. This is a park which was written off a few years ago, about 10, 15 years ago. But today... It is one of the parks which is growing at a very fast rate. A lot of people have applied to do their um, operations there. Apart from that, we're also seeing an increased interest of the local community trying to visit this park to see the results of their work, which they've been involved for so many years. So we're seeing a lot of interest, both by external tourists and the local people. So what are the lessons for Zambia, the rest of Africa, the world even, in what you've discovered to protect these elephants? Yeah, the elephants have to be protected, and it's the role of everyone to do it because these big mammals, they signify the greatness of Africa and the continent. Because if they were wiped out and they they were not protected, then the whole essence of having Africa would not be there because to me, I believe each continent, God gave its own habitation. Wildlife, big animals like buffalo, elephants, they are part of our blood. So if they are not there, then the continent is not there. So what do you plan to do with the award money? The award money, basically, I think it will just help me move ahead with the cause because, again, having saved the North Rwanda and the situation in, in which it is, it's safe and it is sustainable. It can continue. The communities have been empowered and uh, no one can go through it and start poaching again because they are getting more money from the businesses which they are doing in the community. Now, I think this prize money will just help me even reach another another place, which I've been called several times by the local chief there, to go and introduce a similar program for, for his people. So basically, to give me, me another mileage to do what I love most. You're not going to do anything else? This is your life work? I think so. I think now it's in my blood and... Uh, Every time I'm thinking on how to make the environment better for everyone. Hammer called Samwenga. Everybody calls you Hammer, though. Yeah, right? yes, shut to that. Does that mean a tough guy, the Hammer? Yeah, definitely, yes. Uh, um, hammer 
something very tough. You have to nail the nails down into a hard rock. <laughs> <laughs> Hammerson Wenga is the Goldman Environmental Prize winner this year from the continent of Africa. Thank you so much. Great, my pleasure. You can learn more about Hammerskold Semwinga's work in Zambia, as well as this year's other Goldman Environmental Prize winners, at LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, New Yorkers looking for a clean, carbon-free source of power may have to look no further than the East River. That's where workers are installing generators that run on tidal power. All of us, our team together, has built six turbines to go underwater here that capture the kinetic energy of the flowing water without any dams. Uh, They're sort of like underwater windmills. And as the tide goes in and the tide goes out, the flood and the ebb, Uh, They capture some of the energy and convert it directly to electricity. Capturing the energy of the tides, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with the sounds of some interstellar travelers. And no, it's not a message from visitors from Galice 581C. That's the Earth-like planet that scientists have just discovered some 20 million light years away. Bonjour tout le monde. No, it sounds from Earth itself launched into space nearly 30 years ago. In the summer of 1977, NASA sent the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecrafts on a mission to study Jupiter and Saturn, and then on to the outer reaches of the solar system and beyond. And along with research instruments, each vessel also carried images, music, and sounds of planet Earth, including greetings in over 50 human languages. The Earth data was stored on what was then the -the state-of-the-art storage format, a 12-inch gold-plated copper disc called the golden record. These voices and sounds from planet Earth were orchestrated by the late Dr. Carl Sagan. Salvete qui cumque estis, bonam erga vos voluntatim abemus, et pacem per astra ferimus. Herzliche Grüße an alle. Shalom. Tahiyatuna lil astiqa fin nujum, ya leita yajma'una zaman. Sayın Türkçe bilen arkadaşlarımız, sabah şeriflerinize hayırlı olsun. Konnichiwa, o genki desu ka? Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes the suntanned Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vigent. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes... Our report on the water challenges of the Colorado River Basin was produced in association with Field Notes Productions with special funding from the Gunn Foundation. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. From all of us on Earth, here at Living on Earth. Hello from the children of planet Earth.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.